What an interesting story. This flame of Israel. Just one guy trying to start a fire, a spiritual fire for God. Just one guy. And this is us today. Our world is falling fast. And yet God is still giving us a chance to make a difference. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. I love when you're reading, I love reading through the Bible. And in the Bible there's well-known people. People like uh, Daniel, maybe Jonah, Moses. There's lots of well-known people. Paul. Uh, of course, there's Jesus. There's uh, Peter. And then when you, as you're reading through the scriptures, though, there's sometimes these lesser-known people. And sometimes these are the ones that make the biggest difference. You've got guys like Enoch, although I think he's more well-known. There's lots of small scriptures about Enoch, but put together, there's only a few verses He walked with God. He preached the second coming of Christ, according to Jude. How about a guy like Jabez? Jabez, not a whole lot written about him, but man, what a prayer he gave in 1 Chronicles. We could talk about the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross, nothing is known about him except he was a thief and he's on the cross. uh, But we know he's in heaven with Jesus and we'll be with him someday. How about this guy, Elishama? You know Elishama? <laughs> in Jeremiah 36, he was, uh, he's told that he's a scribe to the king. Well, in 1986, outside of Jerusalem, a clay seal was found that says, Elishama, servant of the king. Proving that he was indeed a scribe, the exact set time setting and situation that the scriptures describe. It's true evidence that the scripture is God-breathed. There in Jeremiah 36, who knows Elishama? This one right here is a good one, Shamgar. Shamgar, there's only one verse about this guy. And what does it say in this one verse? That he, in one day, killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He killed 600 guys with a sharp stick. Not bad. Uh, in Sunday school, uh, last, sat, last Sunday, we talked about this guy named Og. O-G, Og. And uh, if you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says that Israel went in and they conquered Og and his kingdom. Og was king of this, in his kingdom there were these giants that ruled and reigned. And this random story is told where the Israelites carried Og's bed from his palace, I guess as, a, as memorabilia. And it's interesting because Og's, they even give the dimensions of this guy's bed. And in cubits, his bed is almost 14 feet tall. 14 feet. So I, just for fun in Sunday school, this is why you got to come to Sunday school, you see? We, uh, you know, we just said, okay, supposing it's 14 feet, let's just say he's a little bit shorter than that. Let's just say he's even 10 feet or uh, 12 feet tall. We know Goliath was almost 10 feet tall. Uh, But the Bible talks about this guy being so big and giant. And even if he was 12 feet tall, some of you can't see it, but uh, I'll use this guy right here. I I measured it earlier. So 12 feet. I don't know if you can see this measurement here. There's a microphone right here. If you're on the side, you can't see this. But uh, this is 12 feet tall right up here. So basically, if you see these flags up here, these flags are just about the 12-foot length. 
So can you imagine walking into church having to duck under these flags up here? That's, that would be quite intimidating, would it not? There's some really interesting people in the Bible. There's uh, Naaman's wife. Uh, Naaman's wife's maid, I should say. Naaman wasn't even an Israelite. He was a, a general in the Syrian army. But this random maid, we don't know her name, but she pointed Naaman to Elisha, who would then help him be, sick, be healed. We know about that little lad that gave his lunch, right, to Jesus, who helped feed 5,000 people. Don't know his name. How about uh, Bezalel? You know who Bezalel is? Bezalel. There's a, almost an entire chapter dedicated to Bezalel, Exodus 37. This is a guy that crafted the Ark of the Covenant. He crafted most of the most of the furniture inside the tabernacle. The, the table of showbread, he crafted these things. God gave him his special ability. There's the four lepers in 2 Kings 7. That's a fun story. These four guys, well, I don't want to get into all these details. 2 Kings 7, you can read about these four lepers later. They basically saved Israel. And then there's uh, Exodus tw Acts 20, there's Eutychus. You guys know the story of Eutychus? Paul was preaching for a long time. This poor guy just got tired. According to the Bible, Paul was preaching into the night, so it's maybe midnight or so, and poor guy just falls out of the window. Just yeah, this is a note: if you're doing something, and you're really tired. Don't don't sit in an open window. Okay, that's uh, one thing you can learn from that story, I guess. He fell out of the window. Paul had to go back, and it kind of gives the impression that Paul had to raise him back from the dead. I don't know if he actually died or he just uh, got the wind knocked out of him. There's a lot of unique stories in the Bible, but this one here in 2 Kings 17 is one of my favorites for these unknown people in the scriptures. Uh, a story about a guy we don't really know anything about. But in order to find this guy, we've got to go through some murky waters first to find him. So you're with me here in 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to be reading, begin reading here in verse number 1. 2 Kings 17 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and the, and the harbor by the, king, by the river of Gozaz and in the cities of the Medes. Before we continue, I just want to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into this unknown guy. Lord, thank you so much for today, and uh, I need your help right now to convey the message that you've 
given to me. Thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you that we have it just freely. We can read it anytime we want. And Lord, I fear that even though we can read it anytime we want, that we don't often read it enough. But Lord, you've given us this passage and help us to learn what you've uh, given to us this evening. Bless our faith promised. We pray in your name. Amen. So who's this unknown guy I'm trying to get to here? Well, before we get to him, we have to first of all look at the fall of Israel. We just read it. These first six verses describe the fall of Israel. Israel has fallen. You see, in all throughout First and Second Kings, the Bible just talks about 40 or 41 different kings that ruled and reigned between the northern tribe and the, the southern, between Israel and Judah. In the northern tribes, the, the, um, the northern tribes that, well, after King Solomon was reigned, his son, Rehoboam, unfortunately didn't listen to any advice that was given to him, or not the good advice. The kingdoms were divided between the north and the south. And in, this, in the north, ten tribes, not one king is recorded as having doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Every single king said that they did that which was evil. Some did a little bit better than others, but for the most part, none of them actually served the Lord. In the southern, however, a good majority of them did, did serve the Lord. Now, all of them did. Some of them were quite evil. Some of them were a lot better than others, but there's a lot more good kings in the south. But in the north, the final king of Israel, before before the uh, Babylonian exile or the Assyrian exile, was this king, Hosea. He was the last king in the northern tribes, the last king of Israel. This was, his, this was the, really the last chance that Israel had to, to try to turn things around. But it says very clearly here in verse 2 that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. God had had enough. For hundreds of years now, Israel was allowed to rule and reign with kings. And this was their last chance. And God had enough. There's really nothing new here to tell. Israel was up one day and down the other, and up one day and down the other. And God had had his time. It, their time was up. Assyria now had stepped in and they'd taken over the land. They had laid siege for three years. They besieged Samaria, which is the capital of the northern tribes. For three years. Finally, one day, Assyria decides to pull the plug. And apparently, Hosea had been giving gifts to Assyria every year. And uh, apparently, in verse 4, they found conspiracy. Hosea forgot to give a gift this year. Ah, oh, he didn't give us our gifts. Now it's time to go in and, and take them out. And they did. Israel falls. Why did Israel fall? Is the question. I think we know why they fell. Because in verse 2, Hosea did that which was evil. And as the king goes, apparently so did the people. The people followed their leader. And Israel, for their last time, had fallen and things were over. Israel fell because of the folly of Israel. Their sin is portrayed now in verses 7 through 22. We won't read all of it, but 
all of the sin of Israel was laid out right here in this passage. Why did, why did God finally turn them over to the Assyrians? Well, because he had enough. Look in verse 7. The Bible says, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Israel stopped fearing the one true God. Now they had feared everything but him. They feared the lowercase g gods, the, the false idols of the nations around them. Verse 8, And walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord hath cast out from before the children of Israel, and the kings of Israel which they had made. And it gets worse. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. How secret was it if it's getting written in the Bible? If you think about that. See, nothing we do is actually in secret because God knows it all. Israel thought, well, they were doing a secret, and now it's written in the number one best-selling book in the entire universe, which is the Bible. But, verse 9, they did things in secret, those things which were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities, in the tower of the watchmen to the fence cities. And they set them up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And, and there they burnt incense <clears throat> in all high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols. This was Israel's biggest problem as they stopped regarding God as being God. Instead, they feared everybody else except the one true God. And I don't know about you, but this sounds like the day and age we live in today. We live in a day and age where we're falling. Our world as a whole is not getting closer and closer to God. It seems to be getting further and further away. And I think the reason is that we've lost sight. We've forgotten who God is. More and more people are claiming atheism. They're claiming they don't believe in any kind of a God. It seems like evolution, although there's a, in recent days, it actually evolution's more on shaky ground today. But just somebody just trying to find a way to excuse God out of the picture seems to be what's more common. You watch the news, you watch media, you don't hear about Christ. You don't hear about the goodness of God anymore. You hear about everything else besides God. If you hear about God, it's usually his name being taken in vain or in a negative way. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affections, truce breakers, and the list goes on and on. We're living in the day and age that Paul was writing about. The fall of Israel is, is a sad story, but it's due, in fact, because of their folly, because of their, their sin. And, you know, God eventually was fed up with Israel. And we know that one day... God is going to come back. In fact, not only is there the fall of Israel and the folly, there's actually a foretelling of Israel's, of, of Israel. 
if uh, we won't go there, but there's three times in the Old Testament that prophets foretold the fall of Israel. Foretold, they knew that one, the day would come when Israel would fall, when Assyria would come in, would take them captive, and when God would have had enough of them. Hosea chapter 1 speaks about it. Amos chapter 5 speaks about this. And Micah chapter 1 speaks about the fall of Israel. Micah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Therefore I will make Samaria as in heap of the field, and as the plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all of the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. Just as Israel was prophesied of their demise, so our world one day is too. We've read the scriptures. We know that in Revelation, we know that the time will come when Christ will come back. He will take his church, his, uh, his church with him. He will rapture us. And then there will be a period of tribulation where God's wrath will be poured out upon this world. And I'm grateful that I won't be there. I'm grateful that if you're saved here today, you know Christ is your Savior, that you don't have to worry about being through that tribulation time. In these dark times, in these dark places, is where we find this obscure guy that I want to talk about. Uh, back in 2015 or 2016, when, uh, I guess, when before my wife and I had kids, we, uh, we spent some time up in Squamish for like a day or two. And uh, we were actually at a, it was like a young, it was a married couple's retreat, but it was done by uh, Anchor Baptist Church. They had invited several other uh, churches that, to attend. It was a nice little thing. I think it was one, or if not, our very first uh, marriage seminar that we went to. And uh, we had just been married. And uh, in the afternoon time, there was some free time, so we thought we'd drive a little bit south, and we went to the Britannica Mines. Has anybody ever been there before? Or you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have. And it was very interesting. It's these mines that were, uh, you know, built back in the 1800s or something, or maybe even earlier. I can't remember the dates. But we were there, and of course, nothing was working at that time, but we took a tour through the mines, and we got to see the equipment, and we got to see the harsh environment that these miners lived in for 12, 16 hours a day. We got to go on this little train and drive through this dark tunnel to try to see the, the, the I guess, the, the hallway, the, the, the stone that they were cutting, and they were going to show us some demonstrations on how they would cut the stone and the dynamite. They wouldn't use dynamite, but they would show us the picks and the axe and just the environment that they lived in. Some of these guys, they wake up early in the morning before it was light, and they go into these dark, dark tunnels for 12, 16 hours. And then they come out, and it was dark again. And they would repeat this, some of them seven days a week. Some of them never would see the sun for months and months at a time. They would just live in these mines. It was a horrible environment, really, to live in. Well, as we took this train down into this dark tunnel, the train stopped, and the tour lady, she got out, and she said, let's, uh, let's take a walk down here if you want to, or you could stay in the train. So we got out, and I think we all got out. We walked down this train. It's poorly lit, mind you. It's not lit very well, but they did put modern technology through these tunnels now, so there was actual decent lighting in there. 
And we, we walked into this part of the tunnel. We got away from the entrance. And now it was, uh, you can't see the outside anymore. It's pretty dark. And the lady said, okay, gather around me. Everybody gather around me. She said, I want you to experience what these miners had to work in, the conditions they worked in. She said, everybody gather around. Gather around. So we gathered around. Mind you, it's quite cold in this tunnel too. And then all of a sudden, she turned all the lights off. And it was, well, it was very dark. You couldn't see anything. It's so dark, you couldn't, it was hard to think, you know? I don't even know how that works, but it was just, it doesn't make sense. But the light, when everything is shut off and your eyes are open, it's just, it's, it's a weird sensation. It's a weird feeling. So for, for a good 10, 15 seconds, it was just completely dark. And people were, they didn't know what to say. You couldn't really hear much. People were just being real quiet. And then all of a sudden, you could hear the lady, she, uh, was turning this, this gas uh, light thing on, and this little flame poof, just popped open. And it was bright. Even though it was small, it was, because it was so dark, this little flame just poof, it, it turned on, and it was comforting <laughs> to see that little, little, the little guy, the little lights, the little flame. It was, it, was, it was comforting. There's lights. I can see. And she said, imagine working in this with this just as light. 12, 16 hours a day. She said each guy would have their one lantern and it had enough oil in it to last for maybe 12 or so hours. And when it started to get low, that's when they knew they had to get out. And they lived in these conditions and this is the, the poor light that they had and they would use this to chisel and to hit and hammer away. And I tell you, being in that, the darkness and that one little spark of light was just enough just enough light to see what you were doing. And you know, we live in a world today that's just walking into a dark tunnel. They're, spiritually speaking, they're walking in darkness, is how the Bible puts it. And by default, the Bible also says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Just So just by default, we, we, we're walking into darkness, we're walking through life and we're tripping over things we're clumsy we're falling over things spiritually because we don't know where we're going but the bible does say that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path and in order for these men to accomplish anything they just needed a little bit of light and in israel it was dark there wasn't a whole lot of light in this tunnel because Assyria had come in, God had removed his hand away, Assyria had taken them captive, all Israel now was being carried away, and just when all hope seemed lost, a flame in Israel appears. Look at verse 24. 2 Kings 17, look at verse 24. The Bible says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Avon, from Hamath, and from Sepharvam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Okay, so Assyria takes Israel out, and he lets other nations live in Israel, around the Samaria area. He lets Babylonians and uh, from Kutha and Ava, all these places to come and live there instead of Israel. Okay, so that's what's happening. Verse 25, and so it was, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent 
lions among them, which slew some of them. Okay, so this is, this is supposed to be the promised land for Israel, but they didn't listen, so now they've been taken out. So now Assyrians, the Syrian king, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know any better. So he's letting anybody that wants to come and live in Israel. He doesn't care about the, the land. He doesn't care about it. But while they're there, God's not pleased that his promised land is not being treated properly. People are there and they're, they're worshiping any God that they want. They're living the life that is contrary to God and God's not happy. So these lions start coming out of nowhere and start killing people. Verse 26. Wherefore, they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. So these people here were realizing, okay, the, whatever the God is of this location, this place is not happy. We need to fix this. So verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom he brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Here comes my nameless guy. Verse 28, Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Here's a, I call him the nameless priest. There's no name given to him. This nameless priest, imagine this now. Israel is, I mean, they're in captivity. They're they're, live, they're realizing now their sin. They're realizing how they messed up in the sight of God. And they're, no doubt, just rethinking their life, thinking how they would have done things differently. Hosea, the king, is probably taking blame for everything. And not to mention the priests here. Now, I know a lot of the priests during this time weren't really following the Lord, especially the ones in, in Israel. But I imagine there had to have been some priests. I imagine not every single priest had just completely done things the incorrect way. And I imagine there had to have been at least some priest sitting in captivity thinking to himself, is there anything we can do? Lord, is there something that somebody can do? Lord, I, I don't know. God, we've all messed up. Is there any way that we could correct this somehow? Is there something small that we can do for the future of our people? Lord, is there anything? And I can't help but imagine at least one priest was asking God for forgiveness and for a way to change what had been done. Imagine one day getting a knock on the door. Hey, hey uh, king wants to meet with all the priests. Okay, so he packs his bags, he walks out. Now, I don't know, this isn't in the, the passage, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I imagine a group of priests got together and perhaps a messenger read, you know, a hear ye, hear ye thing from the king and said, look, the king needs somebody who will go back to the homeland, just you. It says in verse 27, and let them go dwell there. So maybe there was uh, the priest and maybe he was allowed to bring his family or maybe he had a, a small team with him. I don't really know. But in verse 28, it just says there is the one priest. Just saying, I, we need somebody who would be willing to go back and teach the heathen about the God of the land. Would anybody like to go? 
Israel's not going with you. It's just you. And you're going, it's your homeland, but you're not going to recognize it. They're getting eaten by lions, and, and they need someone to teach them about God. And I can't help but wonder if there was that one priest who was asking God for forgiveness and asking God for a second chance, being in that crowd th that day, saying, here's my chance. I got it. I'll do it. I don't know if anyone else raised their hands. I don't know. It seems as if there may have just been one. But this guy got the chance to go back, to be a missionary to his hometown. Oh, it was different than when he lived there. But his town needed to know about God. What an interesting story. This flame of Israel. Just one guy trying to start a fire, a spiritual fire for God. Just one guy. And this is us today. Our world is falling fast. And yet God is still giving us a chance to make a difference. God is still wondering if there would be anybody willing to go. To tell about my love. To tell people about the God of the land. Because by the way, God is still the God of this land. The God of our world. I know our world as a whole, seems to have been rejecting God, but God is still the creator of this world, and he still loves you and me, and he still loves those that even hate him and despise him. God is still not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not willing. Are we willing, though? How much do we care? We know there's a need. There's a need in Surrey. Many of you come from a different country. You know there's a need back in your home country. You know there's a need in your, at your school, at your job place. There's a need everywhere. Some of us have a need in our own families for Christ to have a place. You know, this world is falling fast, and God is giving us one last chance, perhaps, to make a difference for him. We don't know when God is coming back, but we know he's coming back soon. Imagine if God came back tonight. We were standing before him. Imagine if God would come back in a week. You know, if we just knew, Lord, if we just knew when you were coming back, we could plan our life a little better, Lord. You know, at the, at the last stretch of our life, we can kind of forsake all and, and, and run hard. You know, like when you run in a race and you get to that last stretch and you see the finish line, now you sprint as hard as you can. You want to finish the race strong. But God wants us to live our life as if he's coming back tonight. And yet, that's, we find that difficult to do at times. We've been blessed, I hope. I hope if you haven't been able to come to our services each night this week, you've been at least been able to watch online, but we've tried to show some documentaries of some famous missionaries who have come and gone over the years. And we've looked at one missionary by the name of William Carey. William Carey was an English Baptist missionary. And he was known as the father of modern missions. Carey was one of the founders of the Baptist Missionary Society and, as a mis and started a mission in a, in a Danish colony. He also was known for his college he started in Sampore, India, where he would translate the Bible into two different languages, uh, actually three or four different languages to try to reach the Indian people with the gospel of Christ. And that college is still around even to this day. There's so many missionaries we can go through and talk about. I could talk about Adonai Judson. 
missionary that we uh, watched a biography of just recently as well. He was an American Baptist missionary who served in Burma for almost 40 years. He translated the whole Bible into the Burmese and established a number of churches, many churches that are still going on to this day. And that translation he translated is still being used in Burma to this day. How about J. Hudson Taylor? I don't know if I'm related. I, I, I don't think I am. I've tried looking into it. I, I doubt it. But J. Hudson Taylor, a British missionary to China and founder of the China Inland Mission, Taylor spent 51 years in China. The society that he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country of China, which would begin over 125 schools and directly resulted in at least 18,000 Christian converts during his lifespan, as well as the establishment of over 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces of China. One guy, one guy who got a lot of opposition from his own people, kept going for God and said, I'll go, I'll go to China. I don't know how to speak the language. I know nothing of China, but Lord, you've called me and I'll go. How about Amy Carmichael? In 1867, was a Christian missionary in India who opened an orphanage and founded a mission in India. She served there for 55 years without ever taking a furlough. That means she never came back. She went there she stayed. And while there, she wrote many books about the missionary work there, and her books have been used to speak and call many people to be missionaries. We just watched a video this evening about missionary, what was his name? Jim, Jim Elliott. A more recent one, born in 1927, died in 1956, was one of the five missionaries killed while participating in Operation Aka an attempt to evangelize the people of Ecuador. And Jim Elliott, wasn't, he wasn't the only missionary there. There was four other missionaries that were with him. All of them knew the cost. All of them knew that these, these Akas were dangerous people, but they knew, as was said in the video, that we, they were ready to die, but they weren't. Their life was more important than theirs. And the death of these five men was a tremendous stimulus to missions among those of his generation especially due to the books written by his widowed wife, Elizabeth Elliot, and a book of a diary of all of his quotes. You could go online, and we watched a video where a guy narrated many of them, but he has so many provoking quotes that have struck and, and pushed people towards missions. How about David Livingston? David Livingston, back in 1813, he was a medical missionary. He was also a cartographer. He was an explorer with the London Missionary Society. He was born in Scotland, but spent most of his life in Africa as an explorer and a doctor. Coupled with his love for the Lord and desire to spread the gospel, Livingston used his understanding of nature and science to help him map much of Southern Africa. Much of Southern Africa that is mapped today was started by the workings of Livingston. Why did David Livingston want to chart these unknown territories of Africa? Was it to make a name for himself? Oh, when you study his life, the reason he had such a burden to trek across 
hundreds of miles of, of dense jungle. And the numerous times he contracted malaria and all these diseases, why would he continue doing this? Was it so he could have his name written on the map of Africa? Because he wanted to be the first one to give these people the gospel. Livingston never stayed long in any one place. He was driven to the map, to map the continent of Africa in preparation for the many missionaries who would come after him. He wanted to pave the way. He wanted to, he wanted to put on paper where these people were that needed the gospel so that missionaries could come after him and find these people. He wanted to be the one to find them. George Mueller, in 1805, is known as a prayer warrior who started orphanages and preached heavily about the need for missionaries around the world. In his lifetime, his orphanage in England took care of more than 10,000 children. He was instrumental in promoting the idea of faith missions. I've heard of that somewhere before, faith missions. He believed in never asking anyone for support, but trusting God to lay it on the person's heart to support the need. David Brainerd. David Brainerd, back in 1718, was an American missionary to the Native Americans who had a particularly fruitful ministry among the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. During his short life, he died at the age of 27. He was beset by many difficulties. But as a result, his biography has become a source of inspiration and encouragement to many Christians, including missionaries such as William Carey, Jim Elliott, and David Brainerd's cousin, who was the second Great Awakening evangelist, uh, also known as James Brainerd Taylor. More on him, if you will like, later on. The David Brainerd story in his life is actually a book that, when my dad was struggling with his call to missions, he was given a book written by David Brainerd, and it was David Brainerd's book that helped stir my dad to confirm in his heart the call of missions. The life of David Brainerd is an incredible one, one I recommend you read. I could go on, the list can go on and on. Missionaries around the world, these are missionaries that have come and gone, but if you go on this wall over here, here's almost 100 missionaries just on this wall who are living right now, who are serving God all around the world. Missionaries that often have very similar stories to what I've been reading. Missionaries that have given their lives, some of them are going to places that have never been reached before. We have missionaries right now, as we just, as we just saw in the Ukraine, where a lot of missionaries decided to up and leave, and I don't blame them so for doing so. Many of them wanted to get their families to safety, but there were some who stayed. There was a missionary, we, uh, an update from the Young family. They're in Russia right now. They stayed. They're there. And guess what? God is blessing their ministry. They're growing. And you know, as a kid growing up, I used to look at our wall in our church and see all these missionaries that we supported, and I kept thinking, I think there's enough missionaries out there. I mean, look at all these missionaries. There's plenty, and we don't even support all of them. There's a lot more out there. I think there's plenty, Lord. You could just uh, you could skip a generation here. I think we're good. Do you know how many churches we could use just in Surrey alone? Do you think our church can can contain all of 600,000 plus people here in Surrey? It's taking us years and years just to knock on, just to, just to fly our people's doors. 
we can't reach all of Surrey for Christ. We hope by the end of our, you know, every five, ten years, we can at least fly her every door. We can't reach the city. We could use more missionaries here in Surrey. We could use missionaries. All these missionaries would tell you, please come. We need more help. Please come and start a church on the other side of our city. Some of you from the Philippines, there's lots of churches popping up there everywhere, but everyone could say we need more. We need more missionaries. The Philippines is one of the, I was reading somewhere, they're one of the uh, leading countries in sending missionaries out right now, but they still need more there. There are missionaries now coming from different countries and planting churches in America because America needs more missionaries. The world is desperate for the gospel. And just like this nameless priest who raised his hand perhaps and said, I'll go. I'll be the one. I'll go back and share the good news of God to this these people who don't have it. God is looking for willing people. God is saying, hey, there's a burden over here. There's a need over here. There's a people over here. There's a missionary that's getting older and he's getting ready to retire. He needs someone young to come up and help him. We need some more people. Would you be willing to go? And God's looking for someone to raise their hand. But it seems that there's less and less people raising their hand these days. We get caught up in the the life that we live, the education, the work that we have, the money that needs to be made. We forget about the reason we're even here on earth. You know, the story doesn't end even exactly exciting. Because if you look in verse 29, the Bible says, How be it, every nation made gods of their own. Look in verse 32. This was the outcome. That nameless priest did his best. He tried, and I no doubt many people did, did turn to Christ, but this was as a whole here. Verse 32 says, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away. You know, the priest probably wasn't even there for that long. He, he went in there, he probably tried, he, he lived there, he, he, gave his, he gave his heart, and perhaps nothing, maybe a whole lot happened on the outside, but that man has some treasures up in heaven today. And we don't know the outcome, we don't know perhaps some of these, um, these people who had heard about God, who actually did accept him. We don't know the huge impact. And you know what? These missionaries may never know the true impact that they're going to have. You may never know the impact you have when you come... Uh, Saturday, and we give you a stack of flyers. You don't know what's going to happen when you open up that mailbox and you stick that flyer and you close it and you walk away. You're probably thinking, ah, they're just going to throw it away. You don't know what impact that has. We don't know the, the whole spectrum. God is just looking for faithful people who will go. It's not always easy, but man, when you see some of these missionary videos, there's rejoicing. They give their life only to see God bless. What would you do if God calls you? Or maybe your kids to go? Imagine you put yourself in a time machine and you were to go back 2,000 years to the land that, to, to the time of Christ. 
Imagine you're walking through the streets of Jerusalem and you see Jesus come around the corner. What would you do? If you can go back in time and you could see Jesus and he was coming right at you and your eyes met and he got closer and closer to you, would you fall on your face? Would you kneel down? Would you say, Master, I can't believe I'm in front of you right now. And imagine Jesus would uh, tap you on the shoulder and say, it's okay, stand up. And you rise up and you're looking at Jesus face to face. And Jesus says, there actually is something you can do for me. Would you follow me? Would you be one of my disciples? Would you be willing to forsake all and follow me? Or what if Jesus looked at you and said, I ha- you're doing exactly what I need you to do, but could I use your son? Could I use your daughter? Could they join me? I could sure use them. What if Jesus were to look at you and say, would you give to missions? Could you do that? Could you at least give some money to help other people go out to the other uttermost parts of the world? Would you be willing to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to give? You see, missions giving is it's the least we can do. It's to pray. It's important. But giving is just it's money God has given us anyway. It's not even ours. There's so much we can talk about in this passage. And there are billions of people dying out there and headed to a crisis hell. Will you make a last stand like this nameless priest did? Would you be willing to raise your hand and say, Lord, here am I. Whatever you have me to do, I'll do it. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.